This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. As you all know, this is a business that I started to give back more to conservation. We roast premium coffee, and it ships out within hours of roasting. This guarantees that when you order, you get the freshest coffee possible available. The kicker, we donate 10% of our proceeds back to conservation. You choose where the donation goes at checkout. Check us out at SkullBrewCoffee.com and let's do some good together and help protect wild places one cup at a time. Visit SkullBrewCoffee.com and pledge your support of conservation today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 122. Today I'm joined by two friends of mine, Jameson and Kelly of Wild at Heart, and we're talking mountain bucks and some western hunting, so stay tuned. What is happening out there? Happy Thursday to everyone. Switching it up on you, coming at you a day later than usual. Apologies for not getting this out on time. Uh, the the Memorial Day holiday weekend got the better of me. Actually, that's not what got the better of me. Um, I did have a good Memorial Day weekend. I did get some deer work done. But what has happened is that uh, my um, my 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 well tank in my house and the switch associated, and I think the pump is okay, but I've had some water challenges, so I have zero water in my house right now. So I've been spending time trying to get that diagnosed, figured out, uh, having plumbers come out to the house, and uh, was away for the weekend because we didn't have water in the house. So we took the chance or took the opportunity um, to to get away over the weekend since no one was able to come out to the house to take a look at anything until after the the holiday, of course. So. We did head back home, back to Central PA to do a little visiting of family. I did head to the uh, to the old man's property and hung some cameras. The the one bummer was that it seems like this past weekend was just like a comedy of 
of errors for me. Um, it didn't seem like anything really broke broke my way for you know basically since Friday. I got out early from work on Friday. I think that's the last thing that went my way. Um, cause as I was driving home on Friday, I was going back solo and my wife and my daughter were staying back at uh, home because, uh, my daughter had some, you know, girlfriend coming over to the house to stay overnight and have a, have a sleepover. And then I got a phone call from my wife saying that there was zero water in the house. So it became an impromptu trip back for everyone back to, to visit some family, which was fine. I got up Saturday morning, did some turkey hunting, got on a bird. Um, you know, Saturday was the next to last day cause it was uh, open still on Monday, um, which I was planning to go out Monday to hunt, but the the water situation kind of had uh, foiled those plans, but went out Saturday morning, had a bird, worked a bur- bur- bird, words are tough today, worked a bird for a little while, and then I imagine it was hand up, and it just kind of started moving and working its way out the ridge away from me, so that excitement didn't last too awful long, you know, right, right first thing, uh, you know, as soon as daylight broke, basically, and then, you know, I think maybe the game was, was played out as I started making a move on the bird as it was you know, at the bottom of the, uh, not at the bottom of the mountain, but this property kind of sits on the top of the mountain. There's a, a field on the lower side of the property. And so, you know, I got up to the top of the, to the top of the mountain where I kind of pulled in and parked and, uh, and, and got out and did some, uh, some, you know, threw out some alcohols just to see if I could get something to, you know, shot gobble on the roost or whatever. And I, sure enough, I got one too. And so started making a game plan as to how I was going to get down there, uh, to the bottom of the property. Cause in, in the past I've kind of, you know, I, I've located one of the past on this property and then made my move to the bottom of the of the mountain toward this field because it seems like they like to, to roost over there. But I, I've had it work two different ways. One where I've kind of gone in the bottom of the property to start the hunt and I blew the birds off the roost and kind of screwed my hunt from the start. So the second time I played it smart, went to the top of the mountain, came in that way, located, and then worked my way down toward the bird. But what ended up happening was, was uh, you know, probably a poor turkey hunter mistake, which was I didn't kind of continue to locate as I was on my move down, down the, uh, down the mountain to that, to that field. And what ended up happening was is funny enough as I got to the bottom of the mountain, uh, and I made a call to kind of locate where the bird was at, at that point, the bird had now tried to come find me and was now on the top of the mountain. So we passed each other on our way. So this time I was like, you know what, I'm going to play it smart. I'll locate one. And then as I kind of work my way down, I'll just kind of work my way slowly down the mountain call every so often, make sure I'm not sneaking up too quickly on it or that I don't come up on it and I'm not, I'm not aware of where it's at. Um, and so I did that and everything kind of worked out until I got to the very bottom and this bird started kind of, kind of moving off once I kind of got set up into a place that I thought I was in a good position. So it was kind of a fun end of turkey season for me because Monday I didn't get to go out. So I finally got on a bird and got to do a little bit of uh, actual, you know, quote unquote hunting and had one play a little bit of ball with me, which was which was fun. But the bigger news was that I hung a couple cameras on this property, and uh, I had been I think I'd mentioned previously. Well, I know I mentioned it previously on another podcast. In the in the uh, during the fall, I saw two really nice deer on this property, and I've kind of been John and I've talked about this too, where it's like I've been put, kind of playing hell trying to figure out where the bigger deer on this property kind of spend their time because I've seen them on a couple cameras and they really hang out on you know what I'll call the west side just for the sake of, you know, the theater of the mind here on the West side of the property, but the bigger deer never make it to the, you know, the uh, East side of the property and they will be the North part of the property, you know, and, and that's really the only place I see them is North and on the West side of the property. So I've not really figured out why necessarily why this is the case. And so I've done a little bit of more, more perusing. And I, I thought I found, you know, a, a, a bedding, if not a bedding area, at least like a really heavily used staging area, 
this past rut when I found, you know, a primary scrape area. It's underneath this huge, you know, white oak tree with the, it was dropping acorns and stuff. So I made it a point to kind of do some more scouting in that general area. And I was rewarded this past weekend where, you know, I've walked this area probably two times now. And the first two, I guess the first time I went through, I just didn't see everything. And I thought for sure there had to be a bed there. And sure enough, I found the bed this time and found a rub line kind of leading to, to and from the bed to that staging area where that primary scrape was. It was maybe maybe 100 yards away from where that bed is. So I was pretty excited about that. There was a nice big rub that was maybe, you know, 25 yards outside of that, uh, outside of where the bed was at. So I'm pretty sure I figured out what, you know, there's always one main nice deer on this property in the two years that we've had it. Um, they always seem to come from the same area. They come past the same camera. Um, and I couldn't figure out where they were spending their time necessarily. And I think I've kind of put that puzzle piece together. So I'm pretty excited about that. So that'll hopefully pay some dividends for me this year. So I hung a camera nearby there, of course, to try to monitor what's going on. Uh, but the bummer that kind of started, cause you're probably thinking, you know, you said, you know, nothing came up, uh, everything was coming up snake eyes, but you know, you worked a bird unsuccessfully, but then you found the, uh, you know, the buck bed of the, of the decent deer that are, that are betting on this property. But that's kind of where it, I guess, uh, started and stopped. Cause you know, when the goal really for the weekend was to put the, uh, soybean food plot in this year, had the seed all ready to go. I did my fertilizer and my liming earlier in the year, kind of a, you know, a, uh, amending the soil over the course of time. I did some work last year, did some work this year, just cause it was, it needed some work and I knew I wasn't going to be able to get it up to snuff, I guess, um, in, in, in one season. So, um, did a nice, you know, uh, frost seeding this past winter of clover, which came up gangbusters. Um, so that was cool. Uh, but the kind of challenge was, is that, you know, my dad and I are working with limited equipment when it comes to putting these food plots in probably a lot of what, you know, you guys out there are using, if you're doing any food plotting, um, it's just a, it's a UTV and it's a, a disc that connects to it. And so, you know, last year, what I had done to put the, put a fall plot in, I had killed off the field essentially. And then we went up in the, in the, uh, disc that was, that works with the UTV, you know, works, work just fine uh, for that. But this year I didn't go that route because the, you know, the seed that I have for the, uh, the, uh, the, the real, real world soybeans that I have are glyphosate safe. So I can actually plant them and then I can, you know, let them come up six inches or so and then go in and spray them and kill off all the weeds and stuff like that. And you're good to go. And so that was my plan that we would have to do, you know, less spraying and just, you know, trying to, you know, I guess, quote unquote, take the easier way out of only having to spray once and, um, the equipment we have just wasn't enough to, to tear up the ground with all the living, you know, foliage on the, on the ground or the living grass and, and, and clover and stuff like that. So we just kind of made the decision to leave the clover plot in there for now. We might burn it off and put something in for the fall, but I'm kind of inclined just to leave the clover. Um, but the good news was, was that, you know, my dad and I talked and our plan is to put a bigger, uh, soybean field in on the top field of that mountain property. Um, and I think we're going to use, you know, a, a more of an organic method, which will be cool. Um, I think we're going to use, I think what, uh, the fellow, I forget his name now, the fellow from growing deer TV talks about the Buffalo method. So I think we're going to try that approach to, um, putting these soybeans in next year with, you know, doing, using a no-till and stuff like that. So that's kind of the plan for the property. That was kind of my weekend. I did get to go out and do a little bit more practicing with, uh, some, some new climbing mechanisms, you know, so I've been playing around with the wild edge steps. I've been playing around with cutting down my lone wolf, my old lone wolf sticks and cut those down to about 17 inches. And I'm really kind of liking those, um, right now. So I'm, you know, trying to get all my gear kind of in shape for this year, you know, trying to do it early as opposed to waiting to the last minute. And I'm feeling pretty good about 
about where I'm at with that talking about saddle hunting. So there is, you know, a big announcement, so to speak, I guess that I have, I've been kind of, uh, waiting to announce as, as we were getting closer to June. But, uh, as you guys know, listening, I've, I've been hunting out of a saddle for a year, you know, last year was the first year that I got into saddle hunting. Um, and I kind of just took to it like a duck would take to water, I guess it, it just fit the way I like to hunt. It fit, you know, the, the mobile nature that I like to kind of have in terms of the freedom to go and, and go and come, you know, come and go as I please, you know, and, and, and pick whatever tree I want to pick and not kind of be held down by, you know, I can only get into certain trees. Uh, if I want to tear down in the middle of a hunt, it's not a ton of gear. It's super light, all the things that we've talked about in the past. So I'm super pumped to, uh, make mention that I'll be working with tethered tethered has come on board as a partner of the podcast. So I'm super stoked about that. You guys have heard from Greg on the show two different times, uh, Greg Godfrey, um, one of the gentlemen, gentlemen who owns Tethered. Uh, we've talked, you know, saddle hunting at, at length on this podcast with him. And so there'll be more saddle content coming your way, I'm sure, uh, with this new relationship with Tethered. But I've been using their, their you know, their products since they started last year. They're coming up just on their year anniversary. Um, and they're super cool guys. And they're the guys that are behind, you know, a lot of the saddle hunter forum stuff. And really around the, the idea around the DIY efforts that are made in saddle hunting. And they're big, you know, proponents of that. And they just kind of took all those things that uh, saddle hunters were looking for and said, you know, why don't we kind of make a product that's, you know, meets all the needs that we've always had. And that's what they've done. Killer product. You won't find a lighter saddle. I find it to be extremely comfortable. And I have to say that I, you know, there were a handful of encounters that I had last year that I probably wouldn't have had if I were in a stand. And that's not to say that you can't hunt out of a stand and it's not for everyone necessarily. And I totally get that. Um, but for me, you know, if you're looking for an ultra safe way to hunt, uh, ultra mobile way to hunt an ultra light way to hunt, um, you want to check out the, the tethered, uh, mantis saddle, the predator platform and all the gear that they have at tethered.com. So with that, with the business end of this out of the way, I have a super cool show for you guys today. Uh, two of my friends, uh, Jameson and Kelly from wild at heart. Uh, these, uh, fellows I actually ran into at Har- in Harrisburg. And actually, you know, I know Chad Sylvester has been a friend of theirs or been a, a follower of theirs for a little while, or he, or he digs their, their films. Cause he's told me about them a couple different times. And I just, you know, as things happen and life, life happens, I just had kept forgetting to kind of check out their videos. And so I ran into these guys at the Harrisburg show in February, had a nice long chat. We actually went and had, had lunch together and stuff like that. And it just came, kind of came away with like, these are like two of the most genuine dudes that I've run into, you know, in, in a long time, just in, in general, um, that are just ate up with the outdoors, you know, whether it's hunting mountain bucks out, you know, on the Western side of the state or, or out around Warren, Pennsylvania, um, you know, or, you know, chasing mule deer and elk uh, out West, you know, these guys love the grind. They love DIY hunting. They hunt, you know, public land, nothing's handed to them. Um, and they're just, uh, you know, workers for it. But the kicker was, was that, you know, they may not have set out to be, um, but they are badass filmmakers. Um, and they're really, really humble about, uh, their, their, their filmmaking. Um, you know, th- they don't really set out necessarily to garner a bunch of attention, you know, with their filmmaking, but they just have a knack for telling a story, um, and getting to the essence of the story and the videography is, is awesome. You know, so they, they do a great job of telling the story with their words, uh, but their words are just, you know, matched by, but by, by their ability to kind of capture the, the visuals of those moments. Um, so they have a couple different films out that we, that we mentioned in the, in the podcast, but there's one, um, you know, it is shot in the Allegheny forest out around where they live, uh, where they kind of go through the course of the season and track their, their ups and downs 
Um, they have a Western one that I've, that I've watched, which is killer. There's one that where there's like some, some, some bear hunting that's going on as well. So they kind of go, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot, it's a variety of hunts. It's all with a, with a bow, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so you definitely want to check those out on, on YouTube and follow them on Instagram. That's wild at heart. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get Jameson and Kelly on the line. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast. And today, today I have a two what I'll call new friends on. It's it's one of those things where you run into uh, you run into folks when you're at these outdoor conventions. I know I've men- mentioned this a couple different times and you, and you meet guys that are that are like-minded and it almost seems like you've been friends for 20 years but you just ran into each other and had a conversation for 5 minutes and that was kind of what happened with the with the, these two fellows, uh, Jameson Curtis and Kelly McGraw of Wild at Heart. How you fellas doing, man? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good man, I'm glad we finally found some time to uh, to get together. It seems like the uh, Harrisburg show has been like a, a decade ago already. I know, it does seem like that. Yeah, yeah, little... we're, we're happy to be on, man. Yeah, man, I'm I'm glad to have you guys on. I know when we were uh, at the show, you know, we had a chance to strike up a conversation. We actually had lunch together, you know, which was uh, which was kind of cool. And um, you know, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if you guys get the same feeling, but a lot of times at those shows, you run into dudes, you know, or girls, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, you know, that you, you just kind of hit it off with and you're like, you're, and you're just like, you know what, I'm probably going to know that person the rest of my life. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that was kind of like the feeling I got in talking to you guys. Cause we were into all the same stuff outside of hunting. Like we were into the same, I guess what I'll say is the same style of hunting. We want that grind. We want that tough hunt. We want, you know, we don't want anything easy and handed, handed to us. And that's kind of what you guys remind me of. So I'm super stoked to have you guys on and talk, talk deer hunting and talk some turkey hunting. And of course, I know you guys have a big love of the, uh, of the West, but I know a little bit about you guys, right? So it's a little unfair advantage. If, so if you wouldn't mind, just, uh, give me a little bit of background about each of you, where you're from, what you do for a living and, uh, what you do kind of in the whitetail world. And I guess Jameson, we'll start with you first. Um, I'm from Warren, Pennsylvania. I grew up in actually Sugar Grove, Pennsylvania, but, uh, I work in the oil fields. I frack shallow oil wells. And, uh, I have a little girl, she's two and a half and a beautiful wife, uh, Chelsea. And, uh, I just grew up hunting with my, my family and, uh, kind of just grew up hunting the private grounds, um, small farms and stuff like that. And then later, later in probably my mid twenties, I started hunting the A&F and big woods and, uh, hill country stuff and kind of fell in love with that. And, uh, that's kind of around the time I met Kelly and kind of formed a friendship with him and it's been a wild ride ever since. Nice. How about you, Kelly? Uh, yeah, I'm from Warren. I grew up here. Um, I am a lineman, uh, for a utility here, electric utility. Um, my, I'm married to my wife, Sarah. Uh, we have two kids, a boy, Kenton, daughter, Shaylee. I'm sure by the time this gets out there, it'll be news to all the friends. We're actually expecting another one. Whoa, breaking news here, man. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever broken a a, a pregnancy update on the podcast before. I think that's a yeah. new, new ground for me. Sure, I'm going to have to make sure my wife tells everyone else before this goes <laughs> out. But <laughs> uh, that's it's awesome, about time. Everyone should know by now. That's um, awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, as far as hunting goes... Uh, my grandpa got me into hunting. I can remember going with him when I was nine and 10 years old. He'd take me on the first day of rifle. And, uh, as soon as I was of age, he kind of, he 
kind of quit hunting and basically just told me he owns a farm here around Warren and he would just say, Oh, go out there and go try and sit there. You know, even though I wasn't allowed to go by myself at that age. And, uh, ever since then, that's, I mean, I've been kind of learning on my own until Jameson and I formed our friendship and started hunting together. And, uh, like he said, it's, it's been a lot of fun, man. We, we like, uh, the grind and putting ourselves in positions to fail is what yeah. it seems like, but <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a good time. Yeah. I hear that. The, uh, it's always good, man. It's, I think one of the hardest things to find actually is a good hunting buddy. You know what I mean? Like, you know, especially for folks who really like to get after it. Cause it's, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to say it. It's, you have to pick your hunting friends, your hunting buddies wisely, right? Because there's nothing worse than being in camp with some folks or on a trip with some folks who just, you know, whenever tough, when, when things don't go the right way or get a little tough or whatever, they get kind of down and, you know, kind of get that negative attitude or whatever. It can kind of kill, kill a hunt quicker than weather or quicker than, you know, no movement or, or whatever the case might be. Um, you know, I kind of found that out, you know, I was lucky. I know you guys know Chad from, from Exodus and that's kind of my, you know, my buddy that I do a lot of hunting with, you know, at least whenever I travel for whitetails and stuff, because we both kind of, we like that public land grind and we like trying to go to new places and find tough places to hunt. And, you know, we come home with tags in our pocket a lot of times, you know, well, most every time when he and I hunt together at least, but it's that kind of, you know, it's that uh, character builder, I guess, of a hunt is what we kind of enjoy, you know? So, I mean, it's interesting. You guys are from the same town, but it sounds like you guys didn't really start hunting together and stuff until like your mid twenties. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah. We actually went to like, I don't know, you say rivaling schools in the county growing okay. up. And, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that we we're even friends. We knew who each other were growing up, but yeah, just through sports. <clears throat> right. Probably we knew, knew his name, but we were at a, I remember we were at a, a softball game and we ran into each other and I knew he was a big hunter and he knew I was a big hunter. And I, and I said, Hey, Hey, do you want to go to Ohio and hunt some random farm down there? He's like, sure. <laughs> so we we went in October, went down into Ohio and hunted some pig farm. Horrible hunting. It was overrun with pressure and other hunters around the surrounding areas. But it was weird that we just kind of like ran into each other, said, hey, you want to go and hunt? Both agreed to it. And then from that moment on, we were just like, it was the first person outside of my family that I really hunted with. Right. So it was weird that the first person that I went hunting with ended up being, which I can tell you right now, is going to be my lifetime hunting partner. Right. Just because we worked so well together. Yep. And uh, it was just kind of cool how the first hunt was like, you know, it was, a, it was a wing hunt, but it ended up being one that you knew that yeah. you guys were, were going to be good together, you know. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And that was kind of, that was kind of, kind of how a hunt that Chad and I did. We went to Ohio. We slept in the, we, we lived in the back of the Exodus, um, pool behind trailer that they use for trade shows. We slept in that for a week, um, in a state park, you know, and, and hunted this public land that had low deer density, but it had hammers on it. And from that moment, he, he actually said it to me before we left. He's like, man, he's like, you know, I wasn't sure. He's like, cause we've never hunted together before. He was like, and it was, you know, we were going to stay in this like small little dingy trailer together for, I think we were there eight days or something like that. He's like, and I wasn't sure if, you know, how your attitude was going to be, or if you were going to be able to hang or whatever the case was, you know? And he was just like, dude, he's like, we got no problems hunting together from here on out. Cause it was just, 
it was rain. It was crappy weather. It was no deer. And he's like, dude, your alarm goes off in the morning. He's like, you're up out of bed, like clothes on, ready to go. It doesn't matter what happened the day before. And I'm like, ain't no use in being pissy about what happened the day before. It doesn't, you know, it's not going to affect what happens today. You know, you're just going to get up and yeah. get, get after it. And that's how he is. I make fun of him though. Cause he loses his keys just about every day. Once a day, he's going to lose his keys. So that's the only, <laughs> that's the only, that's the only downside, but you won't find a tougher dude and in a, in a, in a harder hunter. But, you know, so speaking of, of hunting, man, so how's, uh, how's this past season been for you, man? The 2018 season, you guys get on some good deer. Yeah. Um, I would say definitely had its ups and downs and it was a really slow start for both of us. Um, I mean, we're, uh, I would say, I want to say right now, I guess that like we're no experts on this style of hunting, but we're definitely in the last few years, we've dove into the hunting, the, the buck beds, you know? Right. Yeah. And taking, you know, what Dan Infault tries to teach everybody and, and trying to apply, trying to apply it to where we hunt. Um, and, I mean, I can say for a fact, we'll never go back to hunting any other way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but it definitely, we definitely had to learn that, um, like you're not, you're not going to have like a good hunt every time you do that style. Like yeah. when, when you first learn of it, it sounds awesome. And man, you're going to be seeing bucks. You go find a bed and you're like, that buck's going to be there and you go hunt and he's not there. And you tend to get down on yourself and like, you, you got to throw that out the window and, uh, just know that like the next hunt could be the one. So I just wanted to throw that out. Like before we start talking strategy that like, yeah. we don't, we don't consider ourselves experts. We're learning every time we go out, we're learning. And, uh, you know, that we, we kind of pull our strategy from what he teaches that uh, what Dan teaches. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so, a, that totally makes sense. Having, man. Uh, what's that? No, I said that totally, that totally makes sense. You know, I think, you know, I, I think that's a good disclaimer just because, I think you said one thing in there. I think that was really important is that, you know, you go out and you try to, you find these buck beds and, you know, you hunt them and maybe a deer's there, maybe it's not. And I think the other thing that people kind of have a misconception about this style of hunting too, is that like, you just, you know, wander out into the woods and like find buck beds galore. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's not that easy. And sometimes you find beds and, you know, you don't know what time of year they're being used also, you know what I mean? It's like, to your point, I think, you know, what you said earlier was that, you know, not an expert, but you're learning every time you go out and that's what's key because it just, it, it changes whether, you know, a good buck bed one year will likely be a good buck bed in general. But if that deer gets killed, does another buck move into it? If it's a really good spot, probably, but does he behave the same way? And does he kind of react to the same type of environmental pressures and stuff like that the same way? Probably not. You know what I mean? So there's that component of it too, but I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to kind of, you know, Oh, that's, that's uh, fine, man. Add on, add on to that because I thought it was important to kind of mention. No, yeah, and you're good. I think on top of what you're saying is is what we've learned is that when your food sources change, those beddings will change. Like, yeah. we're hunting, and we hunt a lot of big woods here, just mature timber, and, and we kind of haven't really dove into cuts a whole lot yet. So we're hunting a lot of oak flats and stuff like that. And if those oak flats aren't producing, that that bedding changes mm-hmm. big time. Yeah. So one thing we do is try to keep tabs on whether the oaks are producing within that bedding area. Mm-hmm. So if the oak flats aren't producing, the bedding the, the bedding area could kind of dry up on you. Right. So, yeah. but last year we had a we had a pretty successful season. Kelly Kelly had a 
really a better season than I did in terms of get, laying eyes on a mature buck. Um, he went through a stretch of like four or five days where he was seeing a mature buck every day, you know, nice. four plus year old. Nice. No. And then I happened, I happened to just dive in and, and kill one on a, on a good day, but he he saw a lot of a lot of good deer. Hey, I'll I'll take that I'll take that too. Diving into killing one on a good day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, it was a, it was an educated hunt. I mean, yeah. I knew what I was doing, but it was definitely my everything played out perfectly for me. I mean, I knew there was some big sign in there and some good bedding, um, really good bedding. I watched some deer come off a really a good bedding point. We had some pretty hot, pretty steep country around here, mm-hmm. and we seem to we always seem to find ourselves heading back to the steepest terrain we can find. And I don't, I don't know if it's because of our love for 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 the hill country, and and the rugged stuff, or it's just because that's always what produces for us. Right. Because narrow. Sometimes it can narrow your bedding down pretty. You know, it can make it pretty yeah. cut and dry. I should say. Right. So these big big hills that kind of they're like for west winds they're perfect which we get a lot of southwest west northwest winds here yep and these heading points are perfect for those those winds and you know they're real steep one direction so when they leave they kind of tend to not drop off them and go down they kind of stay up high Mm -hmm. so we kind of narrow it down on these bedding points and there was big sign in there and i kind of slipped in there on one of the bedding points and he happened to come out and everything worked out perfect i snort wheezed him into range and uh and then put a good shot on him and, nice. and then that's it that was all and, and i want to say too about, about james hunt when he killed that deer just speaking on hunting bedding like i think we've kind of learned like you're not going to find a lot of times in these mountain in the mountainous stuff that we hunt you're not going to find like this big war out bed like like that's where the buck beds every day yep like we've learned to look for like bedding areas with good buck sign in it and hunt that. And, uh, Jane killed his deer on like November 7th or 8th, something, you know, peak rut stuff around here. Right. And his buck didn't get up until there was what, five to 10 minutes of daylight left. Probably five minutes. So like that, um, he was eating acorns. Yeah. He wasn't even rutting. He was, yeah, he was re- eating acorns. So it's not like that buck was out running the hills rampant. Like he was, uh, you know, just acting like an old buck who you had him aged. He was six and a half. Yeah. You know, like uh, public land deer, you know, it's like what you hear all the time, just how they react to the pressure. And I mean, he, uh, he, it was almost like an early season hunt, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. Right. Like if you're hunting the bedding on those, the, with those mature deer, like it's even though it was November seventh, he was still acting as if it was October first. Mm-hmm. You know, they're uh, just not always running around in November, right? Especially six and a half year old deer. Yeah, right. That, and that's crazy, old man, for Pennsylvania. It's funny because like you, you always hear people say there's no old, old deer in Pennsylvania, but man, it's like I know too many people who have gotten on good deer in PA. And especially recently, you know, older deer in, in Pennsylvania, it's just all about, it's like anything else in life, man. It's like, if you want it, you'll go find it. You know, you just have to, just have to get after yeah. it. But I, I have to I think, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say on that, like, I don't know, people like to talk and give their opinions, but there are a ton of old deer in PA and mm-hmm. our hunting is just getting better and better as far as our, the, the maturity of the bucks that we're producing and what those bucks are putting on top of their heads. Yep. 
I mean, it's like a world of difference from when we started hunting when we were 12. Oh, yeah. What it is. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I remember growing up as a kid, if you saw a rack buck, you were were excited. You know what I mean? Like that was about as good as it was going to get possibly on some of the, you know, family farms I grew up on. Um, and now today it's like, you know, you know, I think you guys know, it's like, I live in, out in the Eastern part of the state and I'm hunting at least around my home because of where I live in, you know, in or around Bucks County. It's like, I'm, I'm hunting a lot of like small suburban kind of plots, you know, or, or parcels or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, which is completely different for me. This will be my second year doing that, which is different than I grew up hunting. Cause I grew up, you know, closer to where you guys are, you know, out in the, you know, Western part of the state and then I'll hunt, you know, Ohio and the Hills and stuff like that. But this is the only the second year I've been kind of doing the suburb hunting type thing. And even around here, man, you know, I had a buddy just turn me onto a spot that moved to Ohio and he used to live around here and he kind of turned me onto a few spots. He's like, Hey, you're going to want to check these places out. I've hunted in the past. He's like, there's some good deer there. And I'm like, you know, I was like, Oh, that's cool. I was like, you know, how good? And he's like, man, he's like this one spot over here. And he told me where it was at. He's like, I saw a legit 170 in, in this little area. And I was like, you kidding me? He's like, no, he's like legit. You know, he's like, and other than that, he's like, we're talking thirties and forties. And I was like, for the suburbs, man, I was like, I'll hunt those all day long. No problem. You know what I mean? Like, and that was just something you didn't, you know, growing up, like you said, you just didn't, you just didn't see in PA. And so it's, it's getting a lot better. I think, um, I think just the knowledge of, you know, just some of the stuff you guys are talking about, how to target older deer and understanding how older deer like to live, how they like to, you know, what type of terrain they like to use where they want to bed like just all the things that we're kind of learning um i think help that too people are seeing more you know more deer bigger deer um and having better hunting which is which is all a positive but i want to follow up on two things you said so kelly you know he, i think jameson said you were hunting that oak flat and you had a bunch of sightings so what was it about that that flat was there was there a terrain feature outside of there being you know you know, a food source there for them. Was there a terrain feature that they were really kind of loving in, in, in that area or what was the deal for seeing so many deer there? Yeah, it's just a, uh, well, we're hunting like some real mature timber. Um, it's been, you know, years and years and years since it's been cut. And in that particular spot, there's some like variance in the vegetation that just creates an edge mm-hmm. that's in the perfect spot as far as, like the military crest of, of the point, which has a few like micro points off of it. So if, if you could like give me a piece of paper and say, draw like a, your heavenly bedding point, like that's, I would, it'd be a picture of this. Right. So that's kind of what, what drew us to it. And we scouted it last year together and just so happened that I, like my week off I had this year, I spent most of my time there and the first morning, I went in based off the wind and just picked a tree that you know we hadn't we hadn't picked prior. And uh, right as it was getting light, the buck that I ended up seeing like I don't know four times that week, and he was what eight and a half year old deer, right? I w- we're we're just kind of guessing that, mm-hmm. but because we have pictures of him from what that was back, 14. yeah, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I just like kind of look over and right, like right where a buck should bed, he was standing and he was wanting to bed down. He was only about 50 yards from me. And, uh, I, he had like three doe with him, I think. And they started feeding up towards me, which I made a mistake that morning by not checking the wind. There was a man. I mean, I could really dive into this. There was like a rise 
above me that's only about a 10-foot rise. Okay. I'm on the military crest, and I should have checked the wind. The wind was whipping that morning, so that little 10-foot rise was creating the wind tunnel rather than my military crest. Mm -hmm. And I didn't figure that out until I got up in the tree, which was a big mistake. Right. Um, On a normal day, my wind would have been good, but because it was blowing harder, it was whipping back up to the main ridge. And when his does fed, he was following them. I thought for sure I was going to kill him, but his one doe winded me. Hmm. And long story short, like the rest of the week after that, he didn't win me. He didn't know I was there, but a mature buck on public land, he, when his does spooked, like he knew something was up and I made like four moves on him. And like, I, I would see him every morning and he would just be like, just out of range hmm. like i think i had him at 50 yards twice 70 yards once and then he was at like 100 another morning but you know i, I don't think i ever hunted the same tree twice for him i just kept moving on him but hmm. hey, so, that's that's the fun in it you know yeah <laughs> he's a big was... buck it's at the end of the season he won like he beat me and i kind of tipped my hat to him you know that's right man it's now is he did he make it through last year do you do you know if he's around this year I don't know. You don't? Hmm. Interesting. I don't. So I want to – two more follow-up questions because you both said something I want to follow up on. Like you'd men- I think, Jameson, you'd mentioned bedding areas or, or, you know, when you're looking for beds, like they're not always necessarily beat down like people think they are and are looking for this, you know, holy grail of a bed where it's, you know, dug into the side of a, inside of a ridge and it's all down to dirt and – and all that stuff, it's, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more subtle than that. And then you mentioned, you know, you're hunting just good bedding areas. And that's kind of interesting because it's something I, I've started kind of thinking about more as a, a, a buddy of mine kind of takes that same approach in Kentucky. And that's where I started kind of shifting my thoughts on how to hunt beds, ver, you know, versus bedding areas. Because he hunts all public land in Kentucky and he'll basically go in and find a, an area that's going to hold bucks that might hold maybe two, you know, let's say two decent bucks. And it's a, a bedding area for them. And he'll basically hunt those bucks super aggressively. And then if he bumps one, you know, he's like, oh, okay, oh, well, I'm moving on to the next good bedding area that I know is holding like one or two good bucks that I'm willing to hunt. And I think that that's kind of like, for me at least, that's kind of like a new way to new way to approach it as opposed to finding a specific bed. So can you just, I guess, talk to me a little bit about what you're looking for when you're talking about a good bedding area in, in, in hill country versus finding a specific bed that you're going to try to hunt over? Yeah, um, that's kind of where we, like Kelly said, we kind of started off thinking that we were hunting one specific bed, mm-hmm. and 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 maybe in the time in the, in the springtime or wintertime when we found that bed and we found hair in it, we found I mean a big buck track leaving the bed, we'd kick it out of its bed and we'd say, yeah, this is a buck bed, and we'd mark it on the map, we'd we'd go out and pick trees, and we'd come in and we'd actually hunt that that bed in the fall. Mm-hmm. and and then we wouldn't see any deer and and you know and then you start to second guess your strategy start to second guess everything and wonder if you're doing something right well i think you know sometimes bedding can change from from late winter to spring to the next fall yep and maybe that's where we got thrown off a little bit but i think what we found is is more consistent is when you go out and you find a bedding point that's holding you know, and maybe a doe family just beds on there, and maybe there's a buck that beds just off of the doe family. And but regardless, when you're hunting that really consistent, and and I and I think it's all about hunting those consistent bedding areas because mm-hmm. when you can hunt 
those consistent bedding areas, like so you have a perfect southwest bedding point or a perfect south or a west wind bedding point, and you have, I mean, it's set up perfect. You got some backdrop and you got some tre- uh, treetops down and they're bedding just on the other side of the treetops. And like those are like, I look for the the meat and potatoes of, <laughs> right. of the industry. Like I don't waste my time if it's just mediocre bedding. Although right. I like to hunt the stuff that looks the best and has the most bedding in it. And a lot of times, yeah, you'll might see like five or six doe come out of that bedding, but they're after those five or six doe come out there. Most of the time there's a buck that's coming out of there too, somewhere, some, right. somewhere close by. I mean, he's not far off from where those doe are bedding. Right. And that's kind of where we transition from hunting that specific bedding to like, all right, this, this is, kind of crazy just hunting and maybe maybe you can get better at it maybe dan is dan and fault is perfected it to the point where he knows that that buck that bed is holding a buck that will come out of there and he has a shot at it but like for us because we're new and because this is a new strategy to us we're targeting the big bedding areas the big really consistent bedding areas and that's where we've seen deer and then when you hunt it in the rut like those mature buck they just come scent check those bedding mm-hmm. and whether they're bedding there or they're just scent checking there, a lot of times you can get a, get eyes on them. And last year I found most of the time it wasn't that they were cruising and scent checking. It was more that they were leaving those consistent bedding areas with like two minutes of daylight left. Right. And half the time I had to pull my binoculars up to, to look at them to see what they were just because they were, they weren't, they wouldn't leave their bed until two minutes before dark and then, then come by you and start making a scrape or making a rub. You could hear making a, uh, a bunch of noise, but like, it's crazy how, and maybe we're hunting with a little more pressured, pressured land than, than other people, but these bucks that we're hunting don't seem to be leaving their bed until, you know, a few minutes before, before dark. Yeah. And they're staying close to home because they know what's going to keep them alive. So I think, uh, in our terrain here, um, just it's, it's pretty big here or it can be at least the places that we hunt. It's pretty big. It's steep. Mm -hmm. Um, you have a lot of elevation gain from the bottom and your ridge lines are long. So when you get like the points, when you get to the points, like it's not like there's points everywhere. So like Jane was talking earlier about, um, you know, like food sources and certain oak flats that produce, I think in our big timber in the mountains, like those bedding, the good bedding areas that have the consistent food or the, the food that's producing that year tend to stack up with deer. And I think that's kind of what, what Jane was, was saying, you know, like there, there might be a, a good bedding point that doesn't have deer on it. Right. It's because. The food isn't there that year, or the acorns, and the one a little bit further down the ridge has all the deer on it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right. And I think, I, I think James, you, you made a good point 
there and just talking about, you know, you know, it's the, how you've kind of adapted the strategy, um, you know, that, you know, making the point that Dan, you know, maybe he's a little bit better at it than some, some folks and stuff like that. And I think, I mean, that guy's been doing it so long, you know, I think he and Andre kind of wrote the book on, yeah. on hunting buck beds, you know? And so when I, when I think of hunting buck beds and guys that do it effectively, you know, or that I, you know, that I think probably do it better than most, it's like De- Dan's definitely one of them. Cause I've, I've had him on and he's talked to me about literally shooting a buck when it stood up in the bed, you know, <laughs> like that, he's like that on top of the bed. Um, and then, you know, I've talked to Andre about the same type of thing where he, you know, has killed bucks while they were standing in their bed. And then of course, Cody does it, does it too. And I know, you know, Cody hunts, you know, he hunts some private, you know, he'll hunt some public, you know, he kind of goes wherever he finds a big deer. I know Dan hunts, you know, I want to say like a hundred percent public. Um, but there are other guys, you know, like the, like the, you know, Zach and those guys from, um, the hunting public, but they're hunting bedding, but they're kind of taking the similar approach that you guys are. It's like, if you watch them, it's like they're going in and getting on deer in their bed, but they're not hunting necessarily over a single bed all the time. Um, and I think that that's just also kind of a product of where you're hunting. I think you kind of alluded to that, right? depends on how much pressure, um, you know, it depends on what type of terrain there is, depends on if there is a ton of good bedding opportunities, right? Cause I mean, when you're talking big woods, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly, you know, uh, how am I trying to say it? the the sign that they'll lay down in the big woods isn't necessarily as stark as it would be on a farm whenever they have like three funnels they're going to walk through on the entire property. You know what I mean? Like those are pretty obvious where the deer are and where they're going to move. I um, mean, that's the next thing I actually want to talk to you guys about was just like lines of movement. But before I ask that, you know, are you guys running cameras in, in the mountains? And if so, what's your strategy for, for using cameras? Um, we do. Um, we're, I don't know how to, well, we kind of, we started off running, running them over minerals okay. and then bring yeah, when we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. And then we transitioned into not running them at all. Okay. And, and now we're kind of back into running them and we've been running some of Chad's Nexus cameras. Yep. And, uh, I know. Good. I was going to just gonna say, like, I, I, we let some soak last year that mm-hmm. we put up, I don't know, early fall, late summer, and just and then went and grabbed them in January. And uh, I think that's a pretty good way to learn. I mean, some of these places, it's almost like it's not efficient to run cameras. Like, you, yep. it's such an ordeal to get in there. And, uh, and there's not too many spots that we don't hunt that aren't a half a mile in. Right. Yeah, right. and straight up a mountain and leaving boot tracks where where we think other people won't be. So the less we can be in there, the better. Right. But, um, I think that leaving them soak, uh, strategy is something we'll definitely probably do more of. Right. Um, close to these bedding, bedding points, uh, probably on like the primary scrape or what we think is the primary scrape closest to the bedding area. Right. Just to kind of see what bucks are living there and, uh, what time of year they're there. Um, I don't know. Anything else you want to say about that? No, just, I mean, it's hard enough to find time to hunt sometimes. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The full-time job and, yeah. and kids and a wife. And so running cameras is just another, another time constraint, but if you yeah. can throw them up early and check them at the end of the season. Then that kind of works for us just for Intel. You yeah. Know, what's going on. 
Yeah. I've actually even started doing, doing the same thing. Like even if it's, you know, whether it's on some of the public that I hunt, you know, in I'll drop, if I'm hunting Ohio or whatever, it's like, I'll drop cameras in, um, you know, July or whenever I get out there, July or August to maybe do a scout, you know, and do a walkthrough, especially one piece that I've been to in the past. And I'll drop some cameras and I'll, I won't, you know, check them until I get back out there to hunt, you know, in November. And I'll just kind of do a pool and be like, all right, you know, is there anything, you know, recent that I need to be aware of? Um, but more than anything, you know, I, I, this is something I learned from Chad really. And the one, you know, piece of, uh, public we were hunting in, in Southern Ohio it was a big, you know, big wood setting. And I mean, you know, of course he has more cameras than you could want to shake a stick at. <laughs> He's got plenty of access to cameras. So I want to say there was probably like, I don't know, 30 cameras up, maybe 40. I don't know. Um, but he had been running cameras on this property or on this piece of public that for like six years or whatever. And so over the course of that time, and it was basically kind of what you guys are talking about. He just hang them, let them soak. And some he would check during the course of the hunting season if he was going to hunt near one and pass by one on his way in or on his way out. But over that course of time in that big wood setting, like what he started figuring out was a lot of those lines of movement or the intervals in which you would see deer usually come by certain areas, especially like hanging them outside of like doe bedding and stuff like that. You know, he started understanding basically how long a loop would take for deer in that area, right? Where let's say on a farm, you know, on private land, you know, maybe a deer cycles through the bedding areas in three days. You know, on this, it was taken, you know, like seven days, eight days for them to make a cycle through the bedding areas, right? He would see a deer come back through like a couple different times, maybe every seven days. Um, and so then we started talking about like long lines of movement because there's not as much kind of dictating. There's not as much breakup. There's not field edges that are kind of dictating how they're going to move and stuff like that. But what really kind of was interesting, and I've started using this, was because he had that data, he was able to start figuring out based on the buck's activity, what time, like what time frame or what handful of days, like three day group that those ridges were turning on where there were doe families that were living in those bedding areas that were coming into estrus. And so he kind of knew like, Hey, that South Ridge over there is going to be good. Like the third to the seventh or the third through the sixth. And that Ridge over on the West is going to be good between the eighth through like the 12th or whatever. And so we could start to hop around those specific areas, knowing that there's going to be a doe that should come in around that time. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me at first until I talked to, uh, do you guys ever listen to the guy from uh, MSU Deer Lab uh, from Mississippi State University, those fellows? Uh, I don't think so. No, it's a, they're biologists and, and what they've done studies just on just about anything and everything related to deer. And I, and I never knew this was that does will pass their estrus dates to their doe fawns. And we know that doe families stay together, right? And so that doe family group, wherever they're bedding, is going to come into cycle every year the same time, regardless of which does get killed out of that doe family, because it's the same, it's it's all the same genetic pool, right? And so I start, once I learned that, like it kind of clicked, because then at that point I was like, you know what? There's a spot in Ohio that I hunt that turns on like a handful of days, like every year around the same time. And I had cameras hung there. And so I hunted there last year. And again, like clockwork, and after I did a little bit more dig and I figured out I was actually positioned but in a funnel between two bedding areas. And so bucks were just kind of running back and forth because I would see bucks every day, every single day. And and that was kind of like the light bulb went off. And so I've started paying more attention of like when I'm seeing bucks get weird around known doe bedding areas and then paying attention to what time they're getting weird. Like what days are they getting weird around those places? And then kind of knowing that that's probably the time that, that the does that live that specific spot are probably coming in. 
So that was. So that might help explain that. Like, what is it? That, I don't know how many day rule there is. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you get a picture or see a buck yeah. this year, like next year, he'll be there within a certain window. Like yes. That, yeah. Especially that kind of up what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's, you know, especially if it's around a doe bedding area, you know what I mean? Around that time that they're going to be going to be coming in, you know what I mean? It's like, and that, especially if you guys are doing those long soaks outside those bedding areas, it's like, man, after you do that for two or three years, you know, you'll start to be able to see a pattern start to come out. That's like, Hey, there's a four day window, I'm not saying a buck wouldn't come by another time. You know what I mean? But like, if you're trying to stack your odds, knowing that we're working guys with families and stuff like that, you know, it's like, if you know that, Hey, there's a four day window that this spot's going to be the prime spot, you know, you know, you know, that's when you need to be there. And then, you know, when it's going to dry up. So then you also know when you need to probably make a move to another spot. So, but yeah, so that's, uh, I'm, I'll be interested to see, man, once you guys continue to get some data, how that, uh, how that starts to, uh, starts to play out for you. But, uh, yeah. so I want to talk a little bit about, man, you know, well, first, you know, I guess let me ask it this way. How'd you guys start to get into filming, man? Cause you guys have a killer film and, and correct me if, if I get the name wrong, but it's, uh, it's hunting the Allegheny. Is that what it's called? Hunting the Allegheny? Pursuing the Allegheny. Pursuing the Allegheny. Yeah. yeah. So you, I mean, I know you guys have a couple different films out. It's I've watched uh, each of the films. The one with the bear hunt was killer. Um, the Western one was killer. Um, you know, you guys do a really good job and, um, you know, so I'm just kind of curious how you guys got into that. Um, it's a good question. We, <laughs> I would say since Jane was telling me earlier about our first hunt together on that pig farm in Ohio, yeah, for whatever reason, from the time we started hunting together, we've always took a camera with us. I mean, did we film that hunt? Uh, I think we probably had a camera. With yeah, I, but I I can remember like maybe the year after that, filming you shooting a buck in Ohio that was like pinning a doe on the fence line. Yeah. We did a spot and stock on him. Yeah. Wow. And I don't know, I don't know why, like, I, it's not like we ever had any ambitions of like being, you know, some famous TV hunter <laughs> right. and we still don't, but I don't like, we've always just liked that aspect of it. And, um, I'm like, we're both glad that, that we do because like just before this call tonight, we were both just sitting at James computer, just watching old footage of, of uh some elk hunts you know in years past and it's uh, to me that's like the coolest part of it is that like for ourselves we're able to go back and, and relive some of those moments and encounters and yeah it's just a really cool thing nice it, yeah. it's amazing how much you will forget yeah. Oh, yeah yeah like if you don't film it's amazing like looking back on all that footage from from out west and we even watched some pa hunts and stuff like that it's amazing how much, if you look back on that, you wouldn't remember 95% of the stuff we looked at if we wouldn't have, if we would not have filmed it. Right. So it's that, and we, we went out West one year and, uh, we brought the camera with us and we, we filmed a lot that year. Never really, didn't really know what we were doing out there. We were just kind of roaming around the mountains and we actually, we actually almost killed a couple of bulls. Yeah. Uh, nice. And yeah, kind of luckily, but we brought the camera with us and we filmed and we made a kind of a film, <clears throat> we made a film out of it. And, uh, I guess from that moment on, we just kind of started filming everything and trying to produce a little story out of what we were doing. Yeah. And then 
then there's the one hit wonder, the pursuing the Allegheny film we made that everyone seems to love. Yeah. Um, it's a, that, mean, this, what, go ahead. Clint. No, I was just going to say they're all good, man. It's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a one hit wonder. I think you guys make, um, really good films. You know, it's again, when we met out at Harrisburg and we were kind of talking and you guys had mentioned it or whatever, um, you're know, like, Hey, yeah, you, sh- you know, maybe you want to check these out or whatever. And, and I was like, yeah, I'd love to, you know, and, and you never know, man, like you run into all kinds of people. And it's like in some people, it's like from my days in the band, right. It's like, I ran into how many people who had bands too. like, Hey man, let me send you your demo. And like, after a while you were kind of like, Oh man, it's just like, I'm going to listen to this guy's band. And then all of a sudden it's not going to be that good. And he's going to ask me how good it is. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like one of those yeah. things. And so, you know, I didn't necessarily think that about you guys, you know, because just you're, you're super humble and un, un, unassuming guys, man. You know what I mean? Like you, you do it the right way. You like to grind and I enjoyed your company and you were like, Hey, yeah, we'll share a link with you. And I was like, cool. And before I even had a chance to open it, Chad said something to me. I was like, you know, you guys walked away and I was like, Hey man, I was like, I really like, you know, those guys. Like they seem like really good down to earth dudes. He's like, Oh yeah. He's like, they're good guys. He's like, man, he's like, have you ever seen their, any of their films? And I was like, no. He's like, dude, you got to watch it. He's like, you got to watch them. He's like, they're awesome. And so from there, I was like, all right, I got to check this out, dude. And it's just the cinema, <laughs> the cinema, the, the cinematography in, in those are, are killer, man. I mean, it's, you guys craft a killer story. Um, it's genuine. It's not like a lot of the stuff that's, that's out, you know, out now to be watched, you know, um, as far as, I mean, I think there are a handful of guys that do that style well, like the Donnie Vincents and like the Jason Matzingers and, and stuff like that, you know what I mean? But like, that's the, that's like the, the genre that you guys kind of put out. It's that like heartfelt, honest experience that it means more than just flinging an arrow, which I love, you know, so I appreciate what you guys are doing. And that's, uh, I mean, I gotta, I gotta say something real quick. Okay. First of all, Chad is probably one of our biggest fans. (laughs) (laughs) He, so, he uh, told uh, me one night, and maybe he'll get mad at me for saying this, but he said when he can't, yeah, when he can't sleep at night, he turns on pursuing the Allegheny and watches. So you have to know right now that I'm gonna totally text him after this and be like, "Dude, I just talked, to, I just talked to your idols tonight, and it, and you might be a little bit of a fanboy." No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, maybe but, he has a crush. He, he might he might have a wild at heart crush. Chad, Chad might be Chad might be wild at heart. Yeah, it's okay. As long, as long as he uh, supplies some with uh, some Exodus cameras, we'll be all right. I know, right? I know, right? Heard that? Heard that? But uh, no, it's for good reason, man. You guys put out you guys put out good stuff. You know what I mean? And uh, it's uh, it, you know, my wife doesn't like. She makes fun of me when I watch hunting videos because she calls it the whisper shows because everyone's always whispering. Um, and that was the only time I was watching one that she didn't ask me to turn it off. So if that's not a nod of appreciation, then I don't, then I don't <laughs> yeah. know what is, you know, um, we got a pretty good nod when we put that out. Um, from, uh, have you ever heard of who Nate Simmons is? He does, I mean, he does like the Western Hunter TV show. I, I'm not familiar with the, the work. I mean, I'm familiar with the name, but I, I can't say that I'm familiar yeah. with what he's doing. He's just, he's like a very, very successful, humble Western, Western hunter who uh, also does a lot of videography work. And he told us that that was the first time he ever watched a whitetail film that made him want to go whitetail hunting. And that's always kind of stuck with me. Like that's awesome. Man. Not, not that that's why 
like I'm not bringing that up but like that's not why we do it but it's just uh I don't know it just was uh felt good I guess to hear that yeah I mean and, it's and all... continue to hear that how old is that film I mean yeah. four or five years yeah and, and we still have people talk to us about about it and um yeah, yeah we're just very thankful for I guess those kinds of responses and the feedback that we've gotten from it. Yeah. It's Cause, a, uh, honestly did it for fun. You know, it was, we weren't like trying to tell a story per se. We just kind of filmed and yeah. <laughs> the season took us where it took us. Yeah, you know? it, we just filmed the whole time and the season ended up being awesome. So it, everything worked out pretty well. Right. And so is there, and you put out a couple cents, you know, there's, there's a couple other, there's a couple other films, but do you guys have any, any plans to uh, put out some more films? Is there, is there anything in the works for, for maybe this year or the, or the, the coming future? Yeah, we, we actually uh, drew Montana tags this year. So nice. we'll be heading to Montana, hunt some public land. And we're, we kind of, well, I would say we went on like a, what, two year, three year for two. Yeah. Yeah, two or three. Probably a yeah, two or three year stretch of just not wanting to film at all. Like we we just felt we went two years without killing a buck, mm-hmm. and both Kelly and I. Yep. And in PA and our home state, which you know we we like to pride ourselves on on being good at what we do around here, and we both struggled to even you know kill a decently mature buck, and we just had. You know, we kind of got fed up with the cameras and, and said, you know, this is kind of wasting our time and it's 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 dragging us down and we're not <clears throat> we're not be, being successful at what we're doing because we're lugging around these cameras, right? And we're splitting our time in half because I'm filming and he's hunting and he's filming and I'm hunting. So we just decided let's just put the cameras away and we within that two or three year stretch we learned so much about deer about elk about just hunting in general and now i feel like now we're to the point where i'm not saying we're expert hunters now but i i i think we're to the point now where we're confident enough where we can where we can hunt hard and film and still feel like we're going to be successful right yeah so this year we're heading out to montana and i and i know for sure kelly and i are both really motivated to to have the camera rolling and and try to produce uh some sort of film from that and then we're hoping to uh carry that over into our whitetail season and nice. produce something there what so, uh what part of a uh, montana are you guys going to i think i think we talked about this when we were together at harrisburgs i actually did a it was two years ago now that i did a i did a montana public land hunt that i that i drew for so and it was it was a blast so where are you guys headed out there there's a lot of people listen to this <laughs> uh, uh, there's not a ton of Western guys. Necessarily. And you, you don't have to give me a, you don't have to give me a zone. You can give me like a, maybe, you know, a, a region ish if you want. Well, Montana. Yeah. Montana. <laughs> no, we, we've done that. So we've hunted Montana, like what, three or four times, three, at least oh, four times. Okay. This will be our fourth. This will be our fourth. Yeah. And, and we've done all of our hunting in region three in Southwest Montana, but we've bounced around a lot. Okay. And, yeah. uh, We've found elk in every spot. Um, we killed one what, back in 2015. Mm-hmm. Should have killed a lot more, but um, yeah, 
So we've always had the ability to find elk. Just killing them has always been the difficult part for us. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it always that, that that last little step always seems to be the uh, always seems to be the challenge. I, actually, I was in the southwest part too. I was down. I was out around uh, Dillon was where I was at. I have a good buddy who lives out there. Actually, I should turn you on to him. His name's Luke Scheimer. Um, should check him out on Instagram. He is a he is a beast. Like if you want to talk about like just like uh, a guy who gets it done and grinds, he actually hunted down this uh, mule deer, this one single mule deer he hunted in late season that he followed and tracked and followed and tracked for. I mean, I I want to say it was like almost a month that he was like after him, and finally, I think it was like next to last day or the last day, he ended up killing him in the snow on the top uh-huh. of the mountain. Like he was up a mountain, down a mountain, through, through a, you know, through a valley, up another mountain. And it was just every day, every day, every day. And he just kept grinding, kept grinding. And he finally, finally caught up to him. Um, and he's just a good dude. Like that's who, when I go out there, I, I go out with him and my cousin and another friend of mine and we hunt with him. Um, he actually works for the forestry service out there and he's done like projects of building elk calving habitat out there as part of his job. So he knows, he knows the mountains pretty good, I guess is an easy way to easy yeah. way to say it. And you know, he gets into he actually drew the one percent tag there a couple of years ago in one of those one percent units. And wow. Uh, yeah. Cool. And killed a real nice bull. I wanna say it was wasn't the biggest one he had seen. Um he just couldn't get a shot at a couple of the bigger ones he had seen during the course of that hunt. But I think he ended up killing like it was three sixty or a little bit better than that or something like that. So it was a nice bull. But uh wow. Yeah. So, uh, so talk to me about how you guys prep to get ready to go out to hunt. Cause I know, you know, what we were talking about a little bit, let's, you know, start at the beginning. Like, you know, I think that one of the things that maybe deters people from, you know, where we live in Pennsylvania or anyone, you know, for going out West and hunting is just the, the terrain change, right? It's a different animal. The elevation you're going to hunt at is a different animal. The weather you're going to encounter is a different animal. Physically it's taxing, mentally it's taxing. So, just, I guess let's start with the mental piece of it, man. Like how you, how are you guys getting ready to kind of, you know, conquer the mountains? Uh, um, well, we started off kind of following Cameron Haynes. Uh, he was kind of a role model at first. <clears throat> we knew he was a big Western hunter and big nut on being, uh, in shape. And we ran, we ran the Pittsburgh marathon. Kelly and I, uh, that was one of the first or second years we went out West. We just, we thought you had to be able to run marathons on the mountains. And, <laughs> right. You know, and it, it does help to be in shape. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, but, uh, and I, I wouldn't say that running marathons is the type of in shape that you need to be to hunt the mountain, mountains. And if you're, if honestly, if you're mentally tough enough, you don't have to be in shape. <laughs> I mean, right. we have a good friend uh, from the West. He, he doesn't exercise much and he, he just is mentally tough and hunts hard and knows how to pace himself to, to be, you know, successful. It's not always about speed. Sometimes you got to slow down a little bit, but, yep. um, but being from Pennsylvania and not having a ton of experience, um, hunting mule deer or elk, it definitely helps to be in shape because when you're out there in the mountains and you're not having a lot of success, when you get those little, you know, downs of mental downs of, man, this sucks. I'm not killing anything. I come all the way across the country to hunt and I'm just getting one busted hunt after another. Then, then that in conjunction with being physically drained Mm -hmm. is not a good combination. So if you can maximize one, um, 
aspect, which your physical, then your mental, your mental breakdowns aren't as bad because you're physically, you're strong. So what Kelly and I have been doing actually for over a year now is been doing the, uh, uh, mountain tough. Yeah. Mountain tough. Nice. A workout. So I don't know. Are you familiar with the mountain tough? I'm not. I mean, I've seen it just the, uh, online, but I don't know much about it other than just, you know, the, the advertisements I've seen for it. I know it's just like a kind of a, a total body kind of, you know, mountain shape type of thing, but, uh, I'd like to learn more. I mean, what's the, what's, what's it kind of entail? Um, I would say it's, it's similar to a, to a CrossFit type workout, but where, where I feel it differs is like, I mean, I used to follow CrossFit and do CrossFit and I just like injured myself all the time right. to be honest. Yeah. Um, where this is, uh, it's just smarter. And it, like, it, you know, like there's a video for every workout. And that, like one thing they, they would always say is like, don't uh, write a check that your body can't cash. Like, right. Don't, don't be stupid. Like basically. Right. You know, it's, it's a, it's a high intensity type workout with some strength training included. But, um, I just like how it, uh, you know, you say, say you do like some heavy squats on Monday. Like the, the thing I like about it is like the next day you'll do like a cardio workout, um, where they'll throw in like goblet squats with a kettlebell. Like you're sore as hell right. from your squat the day before, but they're going to throw those like 45 pound, you know, goblet <laughs> squats in, which actually like, I like you, I learned like helps in the long run, you know, yeah. you're getting that blood flow to those muscles that are sore and uh yep. pushing it lactic acid out yeah so i mean to anyone listening it's if you're a person that likes physical torture <laughs> like we do um, it's definitely worth looking into like uh, we've loved it and it's just taught us a lot about how you should work out and uh yeah and not only that it it you know i think a lot of times you set these little these these mental bars or barriers yeah. and you think that you have pushed the limits mm -hmm. and then they design a program that's like okay these are far beyond what i thought are my limits and you push through your barriers to get to what they want you to do mm -hmm. and you start setting yourself new bars and 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 you find out kind of what you're made of yeah and one, you can either give up and quit or, or you can just keep going and do the next workout the next day. Mm -hmm. And Kelly and I both have the personalities where obviously we're not just going to give up. So we, we just start digging deeper and pushing harder. And, and it's crazy because it used to be a extreme thing for us. Now it's like normal. Right. Like you know, now it's the new norm to go in. We, a lot of times Kelly and I are there at five o'clock in the morning working out our, our local Y here and if we're not out of breath and, and sweat dripping down from our chest to our toes you know we're we're not really working out like it's the new norm right and i think that's what the program is designed to do is to make that those crazy high intensity workouts the new norm because it, it just reestablishes what uh what being tough means you know and, and that yeah. carries over to uh how you hunt and how hard you push when you're in the mountains yeah. and uh, and and it helps because when you're calorie deprived and you've been wearing a pack for seven days and you're hiking up, up and down thousand feet of vertical every day 
And, you know, after seven days, that gets to you. And if you can't carry that through, nine times out of ten, you're not going to kill kill yeah. a bull on the seventh day yeah yeah i mean I, mm-hmm. I totally agree with you it's like you don't need to be uh you know i like to be in as good a shape as i possibly can i know we talked about this when we were at, at harrisburg that we you know i knew you guys like to stay in shape so you can so you can grind as hard as you can possibly grind i'm kind of the the same way and i kind of learned <clears throat> learned that lesson the hard way where you know i got in kind of crazy good shape before i went out to montana to the point that i think you know to your point earlier point where i kind of overtrained and i ended up injuring myself before i left and i actually was concerned i wasn't going to be able to go um because i ended up screwing up my foot like three weeks out or whatever which was a bummer but it might actually been the a blessing in disguise because it made me kind of take those three weeks a lot easier than i did would have leading up to the hunt which probably actually allowed me to recover a little bit before i got into the into the hunt itself which was which was good. And I'm the same way. It's like, I like the, I like the kind of more high intensity, you know, as I'm older now, it's like, I go, I go, I go short and I go hard. That's kind of my, that's my MO, you know what I mean? Between. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of those uh, workouts are, you know, they're like what, 35 minutes if you push yourself. Yep. So I mean, they don't take forever, but you just, you just pack a lot into that 35 minutes and you get your heart rate up and you, I mean, you're sore and tired when you're done, but Yep. You know, you're feeling good the rest of that day because, because you work so hard in the morning and, and it carries over to just your life in yeah. general. Yeah, and exactly. Eating healthy. And Kelly and I always talk about, you know, we, we are trying to set ourselves up to be able to hunt the mountains when we're 65 years old. Yep. Yeah. But we're, we eat healthy, we exercise regularly, we push ourselves and we're not like, you know, we're not doing crazy heavy weights. You know, we're trying to be, we're trying to live a life of longevity mm-hmm. and set ourselves up where we're in shape and we're eating healthy. And we would just want to maintain that because we don't want to, you know, we don't want to get to be 55 and our bodies are broken to the point where we can't even, where we, you know, say we're 60 years old and we're both retired from our jobs, but we can't go hunt the mountains because, yeah. you know, we're broken down and old. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, that's the last thing I want is have all the free time in the world and not be able to hunt. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you. I'm kind of the same, same way. Um, that's kind of my philosophy as well. I, I mean, there's two things that I do. Well, one thing that I do historically that I get made fun of for, but I found that it helps me. So I continue to do it. I've been doing it for years, but I found an application for it. I found that it helps me with hunting as well. Um, and then a new thing. And so I'll tell you the old thing first and I'll tell you the new thing and ask if you've either, either of you do either of them or if you'd be interested in it. But so the one is like, I do yoga at least once a week. Um, just to kind of stay flexible, especially as you get older, it's like the flexibility kind of goes, um, it works all those fine muscles that you don't necessarily work in those, you know, kind of explosive drills and stuff like that. It helps with balance when I'm in the mountain, whenever I'm stepping on uneven rocks, those small muscles in your ankles are already kind of, you know, strengthened and tuned and those stabilization muscles in your legs and stuff like that, your core as well. And then just being able to stay flexible, especially more for whitetail hunting, whenever I'm in a tree saddle all day, it just helps to be able to be limber to get up the tree and, and not feel quite as um, stoved up when I get out of it and stuff like that. So that's one thing that I still do. I've been doing yoga for years and I do it at least once a week now. And then the new thing that I started doing, and this is more for mental and, and you might think that I'm crazy, but I actually thought of deer hunting while I was laying and doing this, but I started doing uh, sensory deprivation float tanks and laying in like complete, you know, blackness with no sound laying in about 10 inches of water filled with Epsom salts. So I, so my body floats 
and I just lay in there and it allows you to kind of get into like a meditative state. And then that's when I do my, I'll start to like wander off into like hunting scenarios and thinking about like, you know, different mountain pieces that I've hunted before and stuff like that. And it, it's crazy how much kind of pops to the forefront of your mind that you've buried or that you've forgotten. Um, and it just gave me an ability to kind of see a clearer picture of, of whatever it is that I'm focusing on at the time, whether it's hunting or whether it's something personal or whatever. But those are two things that like I'm super into right now. I'm just curious if you guys are into either of those or try to either. Um, I've definitely heard about the float tanks. I don't know, honestly, that I even have anywhere to do it around here. Um, but the flexibility side and the yoga, um, I would say is like the single most important piece of, being physically fit yeah like that's what i've learned because you know i mentioned earlier that i used to get hurt all the time yeah and that was just from overtraining and overuse and never ever ever working on flexibility yep. and i actually had a hip issue that people were telling me i had a labral tear and you're going to need a hip replaced when you're 45 and you can't run anymore you can't do this like and it, it really got to me for a while. And uh, I started working some flex flexibility stuff, which kind of turned into, I kind of do like my own personal little yoga session every night mm-hmm. when my kids go to bed. Nice. And I'm almost more committed to that, I'd say, than I am like, even though I'm at the Y every morning. I, like, I, I will never miss a, a night of stretching just because I know how important it is. Yep. Um, it, it's, I think tight muscles and and that's, I mean, that's what's going to cause your injuries, which is going to not allow you to do the things that you love. So yeah, I'm big on the flexibility thing. James, how, how about you, man? Um, yeah, I, I probably, I stretch probably not as much as Kelly does. Um, but that mountain tough program, they incorporate stretching into their workout. So after you have a pretty high intensity workout, they, they throw in like a, what is it, 15 minutes, something like that. Yeah. 15 minute stretch session. So I usually try to hit that. And I, I have a pretty physically demanding job. Yeah. So I think that helps me because like, I don't just go to the gym and work out and then sit in a chair all day. Hey, I, hey, hey, easy now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no bashing what people that do. I'm just saying that's like my job is that I work out, like say I work out in the gym at 5 a.m., you know, I'll go to work and my job requires me to bend over and pick up heavy stuff and to be climbing up and down a truck. And and I just, my job is physical. I'm always lifting heavy stuff. So I think that helps my body stay limber. Yep. And I don't tighten up as much. So I know, I mean, yeah, I know the importance of stretching, but I, I think my job helps me to stay, stay mobile and, and I, I have injuries, man. I, I have tons of injuries. And most of them are, are because of my football career in, in high school. Yeah. Uh, crazy. My, I mean, when I was 11th grade in high school, I had MRIs done on my knees. I had tendonitis in both knees, bone fragments in both knees, and a torn patella tendon in my right knee. Jeez. And they were telling me I'd have knee surgery. And for some reason, my mom's like, I just don't think you're ever going to have to have knee surgery. <laughs> And I just, and, and I just kind of held, held that true. And I, one time, what was it like a few months ago, I, my knee was acting up and you know, it was probably six months ago now, Yeah, but popping and 
cracking and all sorts of crazy stuff. And I was like, man, maybe we should take a little time off and just let it heal. And it was just, it never got better. It locked up on me. And I said, you know what? Forget this. And I don't know if this is going to apply to everybody, but I said, I'm just, <laughs> I wouldn't rec- maybe recommend this to everybody, but I went in and just started doing the mountain tough workout and just started going at it, like not even worrying about my knee. And it would pop and do a sort of, it would never really cause me a ton of pain, but it would pop and crack and do all sorts of stuff. And then within a couple of weeks, it was completely gone, like completely gone. You smashed that, so, you smashed that puny knee. That's what you did. Yeah. You just, What's he, that? I said, you, I said, you just smashed that puny knee. You told it who's boss. That's what yeah. Happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I, I don't know. I think sometimes rest isn't always the answer. You know what I mean? Sometimes just digging a little deeper and going a little harder. Sometimes. Can't yeah. help. I guess in my case it did, but right, right. Well, that and I'm no we... doctor, but <laughs> no, but you, not a doctor, but stated a Holiday Inn Express. So I think you're qualified to yeah. uh, to to speak on it. Yeah. But so when it you guys for, it works for everybody, yeah, all right. The uh, so when you guys head out there, man, are you guys like what's your setup? Are you guys you know packing in on your backs? Do you have you know or do you have you know I guess are you. You know, setting up like a spike camp somewhere, like a, a base camp, and then having a spike, you know, going off and setting up spike camps as you're hunting. Like, what's your setup whenever you're in the mountain? Um, we are kind of a hybrid between spike and bivy, I would okay. say. I'd say, like, our, I mean, we're packing in, everything's on our back. We usually do, like, depends on the animal we're hunting and the spot we're going to, but like, if we think, I think we should be able to get five days out of the spot before we either kill or blow it up. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll pack five days worth of food or maybe longer. I think we've packed like up to what, nine yeah. or 11 before yeah. on that deer hunt in Colorado. Yeah. It was quite a bit. Here's nine days. Yeah. Here's nine days. Um, but a lot of times, you know, most of the time we're just kind of getting to where we're like, we found some good spots that we were going to continue going to. So prior to that, I mean, we're going in blind other than looking at Google Earth. And, um, you know, we'll we'll set up our tent where we think it's close to whatever animal it is that we're hunting and just kind of move from there as we hunt. And uh, All right, folks, we're back. Sorry about that. A little technical difficulties in, in the form of uh, spousal uh, phone calls and communication, which is, is required if we want to keep on the, <laughs> on the good side of the better half. <laughs> And remain hunting, so there's a, there's no harm, no foul there. But what we were talking about was you guys setting up uh, spike versus base camp. And I think what you were saying was was that depending on what you're hunting, what animal you're going after, and you you know will kind of dictate you know how long or how much you kind of pack in for for how long, and that you kind of you kind of have a hybrid setup, you know. And you were talking about the longest you went in was probably about nine with with nine days worth of uh, gear on your on your back. So I guess we can kind of start from there. So is that, is that kind of like the norm? You like, is it like a five to nine day kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I would say, I would say we don't ever really do any less than that. Yeah. But actually the, the time we did the nine day hunt, it was in Colorado. We were at pushing on 13,000 feet. Yeah. And, uh, Kelly, I was just watching videos the other day. Kelly's, uh, got elevation sickness and his face was like, bad. I had a bad. <clears throat> Oh, his man. face swelled up. Like I watched the videos and his face, he looked horrible. <laughs> like looking back on it, he was sick, really, like really sick. He had a bloody nose. He was just blowing out blood out of his nose. His face was all swelled up. And half of the time he was like 200 yards behind me coming up a mountain just because he was physically, it was like, it was just, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was all messed up. I've talked to people about that and, uh, they were like, man, you should have been out of there like that. You were probably on the verge of like pulmonary, pulmonary edema or something like that. <laughs> Jeez, man. <laughs> but yeah, but Hey man, there was a big buck in that basin. So I wasn't going to leave. Yeah, right. I the last, last two days of the hunt, we almost, we had two opportunities. We yeah. were within a hundred yards of some really nice spot. Nice. Yeah. But yeah. So like, as far as our style and packing in, I mean, it just all it it's situational as far as how much we we pack and we both run like a one man really ultralight sleep system that uses a trekking pole. Right. Um. Just so if we need to, we can split up. Um. I mean, we try to keep things as light as possible, and just try and first find the animals, and then it like say if you're hunting elk, trying to stick with the animals because elk, you know, they can tend to move. Right. Um. But yeah, it's just, I think just keeping an open mind and not saying like, hey, we're going to camp right here and this is where we're going to hunt from. Like, because that, we've learned that never pans out. Right. We're always on in freaking Z by yeah. the time of the end of the I hunt. think we're, we're kind of where we're going all this, with all this is, uh, <clears throat> is how do you want to find animals? Like, like, if you want to go in, like Kelly said, and just pick a spot and camp there for a handful of days, and if you're not finding much game with, within that mile radius of where you're where you, like, that's that's probably not a good strategy. Right. Like, what Kelly and I have always done when we go out west is when you get back in there, the basins you picked out for deer or the basins you picked out for elk might not be holding elk because all the scouting you're doing is satellite images mm-hmm. right. or Google or whatever. So when you get back in there, you better, you better work as hard as you can to cover as much ground to find, find what you're looking for. Don't go in there just thinking, now oh, we're just going to camp here and hunt here. Like yeah. the goal is when you're going to drive from Pennsylvania to hunt Montana, uh, you better, if you're going to get back in there, you better cover ground to find, find game. Yeah. So Kelly and I have always tried to pack light and, and just, if we're not finding elk in the basin we're hunting, we're moving, we're covering miles just looking for elk because, you know, if you're not finding anything, you're, you're not in the game. Yeah. Yep. So it's, it's important to stay light and stay very, very mobile. Right. Yep. How and, many, and how, we've, always, we've always done good at that, I think. Right. How many miles a day roughly do you guys think you're, you're putting on? Uh, that, that's kind of a tough question to answer, yeah. really. I mean, it, it just depends. depends. Um, yeah. I mean, in a tough year, which we've had, where, where you're struggling to find animals, I mean, it seems like that's all you do. It's almost like you're on a, a hiking trip with a bow in your hand. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, where, like, say the last elk hunt that we went on back in 2015, we, I mean, we kind of went on a um, elk hunt hiatus here. We've been hunting mule deer for a handful of years, but... I mean, that year we hiked into a basin. We found a bull with like, what, five cows. And we hunted him that next morning and we're like, you know what? This isn't, this isn't good enough. We need to go find like a a herd of elk. And we put on a bunch of miles. We ended up finding a giant herd of elk and we spent four days camping smartly, keeping our scent away from them, hunting them smartly and, and ended up killing a bull without moving that camp like we moved it i don't we don't think we moved it once nice so 
it's just, uh, it's just, you know, re- it's just like whitetail hunting. It's just like sneaking into a bedding point and, and reading the situation, you know, it's a, like we've kind of learned like I'm kind of our, our really good friend who from out West gave us this term or this phrase and I'm sure he won't mind, but I'm like kind of coining it as our own. Right. It's like the, the key to like successfully hunting is putting yourself as close as you can to the animal you're hunting and staying there as long as you can. Right. It sounds so simple, but (laughs) I feel like it's the best piece of advice we've ever been given. And it applies to all animals that you're hunting out here, if it's turkeys or if it's elk. Yeah. Right. And it, it it goes a little deeper than that too. I mean, it's a pretty general phrase, but it's like, when you say as close as you can, it's, it's like as close as you can without, without making the mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're putting yourself in a very safe position as close as you can in the safe position, say your wind is just right. And you want to just sit right there. Cause you know, if you step out from behind that rock or if you try to do something, you'll expose yourself and your, your odds go way down. You just sit at that spot where you know you're safe right. and you sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait. You might have to wait. Like in my case in Nevada last year, when I wait seven hours, yeah. five hours, seven hours, something yeah. like that, I laid in the weeds from, from two buck that were bedded a hundred yards from me. Um, for seven hours straight, <clears throat> five to seven hours straight until those bucks got up and we're going to move to their nighttime feeding. And, uh, but like in the past, without that term in my head, like as close to can for as long as you can, I would have pushed the limits and tried to get within 80 yards of them or 60 yards of them when, when they were bedded there looking in my direction. Like I would have pushed the envelope and screwed it up Right. where now I've learned sit right there because when you step out from behind that those weeds or those rocks your odds go way down and you're gonna nine times out of ten you're gonna screw up so if you can just sit and wait and wait and wait and let them make the mistake um then your odds go way up you can learn a lot from what a natural predator does which is what we're talking about right yeah like what a, what a coyote or, or a wolf or a mountain lion does that's exactly what they do you know yeah. There's a term like coyoteing, coyoteing out. Like you're just kind of in the shadows, just shadowing whatever you're hunting until the moment's right, you know. Until they give you a, a an opportunity, until they make a mistake. Yeah, you let you let that animal mess up. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Actually, in that in that situation in Nevada, I was just talking about those bucks got up to leave to go to their nighttime feeding, worked up this little saddle. I slipped up on them. And I got within 60 yards and I set my, my single pin to 60 and I planned on shooting a 60 yard shot and I ranged the back buck at 60 yards. And I, and I, when I drew on the, the front buck saw me and they ended up spooking, but needless to say, I had a better shot at that than trying to get within 60 yards of them with them staring in my direction. So right. It ended up you know, really well for me. I just didn't end up killing them. Right. Nice. And and that happens more time than not. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just, you know, it's, uh, that's why they call it hunting and not, not watching, I guess. You know what I mean? It's, it's a lot harder to, yeah. to put an arrow in them than people, than, than people think, you know, it's, I, there was a, when I went on that elk hunt, I had an opportunity at two different elk and then my buddy shot the one cause we actually were both drawn on the bull at the same time. 
Um, and he ended up getting him. Um, and then I actually had a stock on a mule deer too, that I just ran out of daylight. Like I saw him when we crested this screen, like this top of this, uh, mountain and he kind of ran, there was like this flat spot. Once we got to the top of the mountain, he kind of ran down that and then down the other side. And it was just like this grass Valley that he was kind of working his way toward. And so I got down off that, like, you know, the top of the mountain on the, the backside and kind of worked my way around because there was just one little, you know, saddle between that peak of the mountain and then the next mountain like over or whatever that he was going to have to work his way through and so i was like if i my buddy was kind of working with me he's like if we work around this backside, he's like we can probably cut him off or at least get there maybe right before he does so we get we you know hustled our ass off to get around the side of this mountain got over there took my shoes off of course and then stalked up on him and he was I don't know. It was, I was losing light and he was maybe 70 yards away from me and he wasn't moving real fast and it was getting, it was getting dark and there was a little bit of like, uh, um, there was a couple of trees up there that were decent size. Not like, you know, it wasn't a huge, it wasn't like a, a timber line or anything like that, but there was enough that I could kind of get behind every so often and kind of stay out of sight. And I think I worked my way up to like, I don't know, maybe 60 yards, 50 yards, but I was losing light. So I wasn't confident at that distance. Um, and then I just, I, I ran out of light to where it's like, I lost my pins and just, I couldn't go any further and that was it. But it was one of the coolest yeah. things ever, man, was just making that stock and getting that close, you know what I mean? And working up on him and, uh, just being patient, like you're talking about, you know what I mean? Just kind of every time he would give me an opportunity to move, I would make a move, you know? And that was kind of how, that was actually how we killed that elk too. Cause he, he wouldn't commit. We had three bugling. And one we knew wasn't going to commit because we could hear that he had cows with him. There was, he wasn't going to, and he was kind of further away. And then there were two other ones and the one just kind of bailed right away. And the third one, he was staying close by, but he wouldn't commit. And so my buddy was like, you know, he's not a, he, he's definitely a satellite boy. He's like, cause he's just, he's a little concerned about getting whooped, you know, coming into this cow call. He's like, so we played a little longer with him and he just, you know, he would get to maybe 80 yards and he would hang up. You know, and then we could hear him get a little further away and then we'd work his way back a little bit. And so finally my buddy just looked at me. He's like, listen, he's like, I'm going to call when he bugles. He's like, we're going to run. He's like, and then we're going to run and we're just going to get behind whatever is closest to us when he stops bugling. He's like, and we're just going to keep doing that until we get within his comfort zone. He's like, and then hopefully we'll break this barrier that he feels comfortable making a move that he's far enough away from that herd bull that he'll make a move. And so we did that a couple of times and we got... I don't know. We probably got within 60 yards of him. Then finally, like we heard he was getting closer. And then my buddy was like, Hey, I'm going to go back behind these trees over here. I'm going to work my way up the mountain a little bit. And I'm going to call and try to call him by you. And I was like, all right, cool. So um, he's getting ready to move. And I just grabbed his arm like, Hey dude, hold up. And he's like, why, what? And I was like, he's standing right there and he's like 40 yards away. And so we both, <laughs> we both drew and we were standing almost right next to each other. And there was a kind of like this down tree that was splitting us. And if he turned to his, you know, if he turned left, he was going to cross my shooting lane. If he turned, if he kept coming straight or slightly veered to the, to his right, um, he was going to cross my buddy's shooting lane. So we're both literally standing beside each other at full draw, just waiting to see what this bull's going to do. And he got to 26 yards, screamed in our face, put his head down and just kind of turned toward my buddy. And my buddy let an arrow rip and he, he just, uh, he pinwheeled him and stuck him right in the heart. And that was it. He didn't run, but third, I mean, he didn't really run. He ran. I mean, we watched his back legs give out and him fall down. And he was maybe 45 yards from us. So he, he walked away 20 yards. And when I say walk, he spun, broke the arrow, walked and then dropped in 20 yards. And that was it. It was a pretty cool thing to walk up on the dead elk. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, well, that was the first one I'd ever seen. Game. 
Yeah, dude. I mean, it's just that was the first one I'd ever seen, like, you know, in the timber or whatever, you know, other than the one, you know, that I had seen. I'd, I mean, I had seen a couple elk during that trip, but there was two that I saw close. It was like that one, and that was super close. That was like whitetail close. And then there was another pretty decent-sized bull that I had when we, the four of us all split up, and I was hunting this drainage and working it down some of this dark timber and got uh, about halfway down it, and I saw this bull. He was the biggest bull I'd seen the entire two weeks. And uh, we unfortunately, when I went to draw, he saw me at the same time. Like I was up on top of the edge of the drainage, and he was down on the bottom feeding. Um and, uh, it was about a 60 yard shot and we just saw each other, you know, as I drew back and then he took off and I didn't mm-hmm. get to release an arrow, but, but they're just, I mean, they're, it's like they're dinosaurs, dude. Like the way they sound, the way they look. <laughs> yeah, they're awesome. Yeah. I mean, but, we've, uh, we've killed three elk okay, you know, nice. with our boat and, uh, I think all three have been 15 yards or less. Nice. Uh, like one was like eight steps. I mean, they're, <laughs> yeah. it's funny, like you, you practice 70 and 80 yards all summer and not, not like that's what I'm setting out to shoot one at, but you know, when you're going out West, you're like, you're practicing for those long range shots to yeah. make those shorter ones easier. Exactly. And, and then you go out there and it's like our, the last bull that we killed, I remember drawing back on them and I had at that point in time, I think I had a five pin site and I like lined up in my peep and all five pins were in his kill zone. And I remember not even aiming and just saying, whatever. I just hit my, hit my release and uh, I, mean, I killed him and it was a quick, quick kill. But I mean, it's, it's just funny how that works out. You, you tend that as close as you can for as long as you can thing. Like you just tend to, if you like hunt by that, like you'll find yourself swimming in elk. Yeah. And it's just, it's just a riot. It's just fun. Yeah. And even if you don't get to kill, man, it's like, if you still follow that philosophy and you just get that close, man, it is just something super cool to experience just to be that close to him. Regardless. Like I came back from that trip and I was like, I didn't kill anything. I got the draw back on a couple mule deer. I got the draw back on two different elk and my buddy got one. I was like, I came back fulfilled. You know what I mean? Not only that, but I came back going like, I can't wait to do that again. So I actually have, I'm not going this year because I actually I put in for my Iowa tags. I should I should draw. I should I have the points to draw, so I should find out. Yeah, you know, I'll find out in July, of course. But I should draw for Iowa this year, so I'm not going out west. But next year mm-hmm. I'm actually doing a, a Colorado a Colorado hunt with my dad. My dad and I are going out to hunt with a, a buddy of mine that that lives out there. Cool. So yeah, so looking forward to that. But so I've had you guys here for about an hour and a half now. Uh, you know, I want to be sensitive to your time here on a on a Friday evening. Give you guys some uh, some family time. So before I let you all go, if you wouldn't mind, uh, let folks out there listening know where they can find out more about you know both of you and uh, where they can find out more about Wild at Heart. Uh, we have an Instagram page, um, which I'd say we're probably most active with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's W A H outdoors. Yeah. W A H outdoors at W A H outdoors. Um, yeah. If you give us a follow, we'd appreciate that. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, we also have a Vimeo channel and a YouTube channel. We're going to try and be more in the past. We were active with the Vimeo, but I mean, YouTube's where people are at. So we'll uh, be more active with that YouTube channel. And that's just wild at heart outdoors. So then we have a Facebook page. Yep, yep, Facebook as well. <clears throat> nice. But, like, we just, you know, we we appreciate 
people following us and and complimenting on our stuff but we just we honestly just do what we do because we love it so yep uh the the follow and the pat on the back's nice but uh we just love what we do so well i I think just with what james saying like i think the coolest thing with what like the films we put out and whatnot is when you get the feedback like we just had uh, a guy message us on instagram last week saying he was saying that uh talking about our pursuing the allegheny film how last year he hunted all week wasn't seeing deer he had strep throat he was sick he had one more day to hunt and he wasn't going to go out hunting and then he watched our film and he went out and did an all-day sit and killed a buck in the last hour of of, of the day like a mature buck in in the national forest and he was like saying thanks to us and i was like that's just so cool to hear i mean yeah yeah i hear i hear that it, it's, it's always, just, I don't even know, I don't even know what to say about it, really. Yeah, like, I, I know what you're saying, man. It's like it's always nice, you know. When I'll get a message, you know, about you know, hey, I heard something on one of your podcasts that helped me out. It's like I'm always like, man, I'm I'm glad like the the stupid stuff I do is is able to help somebody. <laughs> you know, I'm just doing this having fun. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you know, and uh, you don't set out to do it. You like you don't set out to like you know, nah. it's not like you're setting out to be that guy that like tells everyone, you know, it, but when it happens, it's just cool. It's just, uh, it is, man. It's, uh, well, I think that in the world and, and helping others out and, and, you know, it's just a, a cycle of being helped and helping others. That's, that's it, man. I think that's a good place to leave it, dude. Um, you guys, man, you guys are aces, dude. I appreciate you guys coming on here. Um, good people, wild at heart, check them out. Thanks for coming on fellas. We're going to do this again real soon. Thanks. Sounds good, Clint. Thank you. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Jameson and Kelly for joining. Be sure to check out their films on YouTube and give them a follow on Instagram. We'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do just those two things for us. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, Obsession Bows, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, we'll see y'all. I November's on my heels. Makes me proud, makes me steal. I could show you through the door. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.